This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. On June 30th, 1975, the University of California reported that Galaxy 3C123 was at a distance of 8 billion, that's with a B, light years away. That's pretty far. And coincidentally enough, in the same year, this week's guest attended his very first Detroit Lions game at the ripe old age of 16. And that was in the Pontiac Silverdome, which filled him with all the Honolulu blue and silver Kool-Aid he could handle. But just like Galaxy 3C123, something else feels 8 billion light years away for Randy and yours truly, and that is the Super Bowl. Welcome football history dude podcast where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the nfl your host is arnie chapman football is his passion and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron so hop on board his delorean and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour this time you step up the delorean the date is november 22nd 19. 63, and we're in Dallas, Texas. Yes, this day is infamous throughout American and world history, but this week's guest shares with us another reason, albeit less significant, of course, why this day comes with much controversy for my NFL team, and this week's guest as well, the Detroit Lions. We'll get into that later in the episode when this week's guest covers his top 10 things you didn't know about the Detroit Lions. Speaking of this week's guest, his name is Randy Snow. This is a guy. Nay, this is a dude. And it is surely evident that he loves him some football. But don't take my word for it. Head over to his website to see all the photos of football places he's been, the games he's attended, the graves he's been at, everything else that he's documented over on the website. Not to mention the podcast that he has with his son about the world of football and everything else that he has going on over at the website, which is theworldoffootball.com. And to make it easier on you, I got a link in the show notes so you can just go ahead and click on that bad boy and get right on over there. Also in the show notes, you'll find a link to the Sports History Network, which is the headquarters for sports yesteryear. We are now up to 21 podcasts covering sports history from all sorts of different angles. Do yourself a favor, head over to the Sports History Network website to learn more about these shows and also sign up for the newsletter, which will keep you in touch with the cool giveaways that we have on the network all the time, as well as the new shows coming out on the network, and just some random tidbits of sports history knowledge nuggets for you. You can get there simply by heading over to sportshistorynetwork.com. And with that, this is a long episode, so let's get right into the interview with Randy Snow. So anyway, I mean, this is going through. Again, I'm glad because I finally have somebody wearing a Detroit Lions hat on the other side of this microphone. I mean, I'm wearing my sweater. I got my hat over there. I got everything else going on. And so I had to bring you on because you're a Detroit Lions fan. That's one of our big things we're going to focus on here. But first, let's get into the world of football. I'm scrolling through your site, and it's evident that you and your son very much love the game of football. You know, of all forms of it, North American football, that is. 
I think the first thing to do is to ask you to tell me the mission statement and the purpose for starting your website and your podcast. (laughs) Well, uh, our mission statement is to promote the game of football in all its many forms, past, present, and future. And that just means we, we like talking about the past football, you know, back in the 20s, 30s, going back to the 1800s. We like talking about today's football. And we like talking about what uh, what the direction of football is going to be, you know, what's going to happen in the future. New leagues coming out, the the XFL, the uh, other leagues that, that, you know, seem to come and go. But we're always talking about what's what's next, what what leagues are out there, what do they plan to do, what are they going to be different. It's just uh, we, we just love it all. You know, we've been to Canada for games. We've been I used to cover arena football uh, for the Grand Rapids Rampage. And I've I've been to many other arenas uh, around the country to uh, cover games. And it's, it's just all good. It's all football. And, uh, you know, I'd rather go to a bad football game than a good baseball or basketball game any day. <laughs> yeah, I hear you there. I'm uh, I'm the same way. I mean, I do enjoy all the sports. When I was growing up, it was so so I was. I would say probably actually there was a period of time where basketball was my favorite because I'm of the age where my formidable years were the the end of the bad boys Pistons. Then you got into the Michael Jordans and that whole era and everything. So I was really into that as far as like watching. But then baseball was the thing I was the best at. But you can't ever go back and say that I wasn't just because of in love with the Lions. Barry Sanders, I mean, you're a guy that can understand. If I just say Barry and you just probably went back to that time in the Silverdome of chanting, Barry, Barry, Barry. So let's go to this. I wish I could show you this physically because I don't have the video, but I promise you I have a DeLorean, a physical a uh, replica of a DeLorean, and this is the number one question we're going to go. DeLorean number one, we're going to go way back in time. Take me back to the first memory that you had of football as a youngster. Uh, let's see. My first memory of the Lions. Uh, when I was growing up, I, I really wasn't uh, a, a fan of football. I think it wasn't until I got in high school that uh, I really started following football because I was in the marching band. So yeah, I was at all the, foot, the high school football games in, in the fall. And I do remember, you know, as a kid being on the bus and uh, hearing about uh, Chuck Hughes uh, dying during a game. I mean, this is when I was a little kid and I'm on the school bus and all the other kids were talking about it. And that's really my first recollection of the Lions and uh, uh, pro football. And then finally, you know, uh, like I said, I, I wasn't really into football until I started going to all the high school games for my high school. And. I just really got into it. And my brother took me to uh, a Lions game at the Silverdome when I was 16 years old. We saw the Lions and the Packers and the Lions won 10 to three. And, you know, the Silverdome was such an awesome place. Uh, 80,000 people there just going crazy. And I was just I I was hooked ever since. And uh, I've been a Lions fan all my life. I've uh, <laughs> basically forced my kids to be Lions fans, uh, whether they wanted to or not. Um, my wife uh, tried to get one of my sons to be a Packers fan, just to spite me. And she bought him a, a Packers uniform, bought him a Packers helmet. And she's, we've got some pictures of him as a kid uh, wearing a Packers uniform out in the front yard. And I think he even had a school picture taken as a Packers fan. And and I was gritting my teeth the whole time, but eventually he he got over that phase and he became a Lions fan and and 
we're all Lions fans in this house now. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. So that sounds like something. I we have a photo of my grandpa. I mean, it wasn't he wasn't really doing it, but back when I lived in the Dallas area, he 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 took his thumb and he went on the Jerry World, the new stadium, and made it look like he was peeing on the stadium. So hey, take a picture of this, you know, because <laughs> we're anti Cowboys and anti Packers fans in this neck of the woods. Uh, speaking of that, Detroit Lions, you, you mentioned the Silver Dome. I got to look this up. I don't know if they have it out there. That parking lot i wonder how much concrete it took because that was a massive parking lot uh it yeah it was huge the the stadium parking lot was so big there were times when it took you forever to walk in from the the back 40 i'll call it uh to get to the stadium and uh when after a win it was great because you didn't mind that long walk but after a loss it just seemed like it took forever to get back to your car especially in michigan in the middle of the de- december I'm never dealing with january unfortunately but in the middle of december yeah. <laughs> i've always tried to go to uh, uh games early in the season because uh, you know here in michigan it's uh it's so hard to drive you know from kalamazoo to either pontiac or detroit that's a two-hour drive and if the weather's really bad i mean and you don't know you know when you buy tickets what it's going to be like in december and late november i've been to many uh thanksgiving day games and those are always good um so it depends on the game if i really want to see it i'll go but uh, otherwise I'll, i'll try to go early in the season to see them and then when the weather turns bad i'll just sit in front of the tv and watch them yeah i'm with you i mean i remember one game uh I don't know what time of year it was. It had to have been sometime near the the winter time because it was a massive storm. And on the way home, it typically takes, uh, I'd, I'd say, about an hour and a half after you deal with traffic and everything to get out. But it, it was at least three hours for us to get home. I don't know how many cars were on this side of the road. I'm sure some of them had a little bit of uh, liquid courage running through their veins or something like that. But uh, yeah. regardless <laughs> of the situation, uh, stadiums, and we have we've always had the dome at least ever since Briggs Stadium. Uh, have you ever been to Lions games outside of Detroit? Oh yeah, I've I've been to see the Lions play in Cleveland, and uh, uh, my sons and I have been to Indianapolis to see a game. Um, Indianapolis is an awesome stadium, uh, and and the Brown Stadium is pretty pretty good too. But uh, I've never been to to Lambeau for a game or Chicago. That's that's kind of on my list to to do those. But yeah, I've been to Indianapolis. I've also been to. Um, Carolina. We saw Detroit play the Panthers down there back in 2002, and uh, that was pretty good, too. The weather was great. It was an early season game. So, yeah, we've traveled a little bit to see him. Uh, Adam really wants to go see the Lions play uh, Los Angeles this year out in L.A. He's, he wants to see that stadium real bad. He, he's he's torn about going and spending the money for a ticket and then you know flying out there and seeing the game. But uh, he's definitely thinking about it. Yeah, that's one of those I can talk. Okay, so I can talk to you about this as being a lifelong Lions fan because I personally am torn. On one hand, I, I mean, I would love to go to the stadium and LA and all that stuff. But as far as the Lions fan goes, I am going to find myself rooting for Stafford because I just, I was the Stafford truther. I really enjoyed that guy. I, I, his, his grit. Yeah, he made some bonehead plays, but again, he was put in some tough situations. But Ultimately, I, I'm glad for him as a non-Detroit Lions uh, chance, but uh, at the same time with us, those two first-rounders, hey, man, Stafford, why don't you win one of them and then maybe just go ahead and sell, sell off to the sunset or something like that. Yeah, uh, it was really hard to see Stafford leave. I mean, he was the best thing we've had on this team since Barry, I think, and I know a lot of people didn't like him. Uh, they didn't think he could win, but I just I felt like if they could – build the, a better team around him, he would be fine because he's been carrying this team uh, for so many years. And 
Uh, I was really sad to see him go, but I think I think he'll do great in Los Angeles. Uh, so I'm I'm gonna follow him too, just because he's a, a former Lion, and uh, and I wish him the best. Oh yeah, me too. I mean, you're talking what was it? Nine, so 2000 was it 2009? Was it the year he was drafted? I believe so. It was the year after they went 0 and 16, so that was 2008. Yeah. That's probably why I had a hard time figuring it out because that's like one of those when you have a traumatic experience, it wipes everything from your memory, I think. So, <laughs> yeah. But, you yeah, know, I, I mean, we joke around. I mean, like I said, you're, you're a VIP on this podcast because I don't get too many Lions fans. Fortunately, I get, you know what, I got to, I'm going to give Josie Emba when you're listening to this, I'm giving you some crap right now, Tommy Phillips, all you guys, Packers and, and Bears fans. I got too many of them on the network. I need to bring you on so we have more <laughs> Lions fans on this network. And that's really why I brought you on this show. The most recent issue of the Coffin Corner from the Pro Football Researchers Association, and you happen to hit the uh, hit the cover. You're the poster boy right there. Let's talk about that article. Give me the ten things that the listener of this show did not know about the Detroit Lions. Well, there's a, a lot of things that people don't know about Detroit. They they only go back as far as the, the Super Bowl era, so a lot of people aren't really familiar with the fact that Detroit actually played in four championship games in the 50s. Uh, they were in the uh, 52, 53, and 54, and then again in 57, and they won three of those. And ironically, all four of those games were against the same team, the Cleveland Browns. So even though the Browns, the Lions, uh, let's see, the um, uh, Texans and the Jaguars, they're the four teams that have never been to a Super Bowl. Uh, Detroit and Cleveland do have a, a history of champions, uh, the Browns even more than Detroit. So uh, it, a lot of people just are not aware uh, of that one fact that uh, Detroit and Cleveland played in four title games in the 1950s. Yeah, I mean, that's something that even as a Detroit Lions fan myself, historian, so uh, I should why not? I can't believe I just called myself a historian. That's that's incredulous. That was not what I meant to say by any means. I, re- interviewing historians, I've, I've kind of naturally been through osmosis, becoming a little bit more inept or adept. I think that's the right word at learning about football history because of all the great experts on the show. And I knew a little bit about the former, you know, the, the past Detroit and just really in NFL in general, my, my era doesn't know much about before let's call it the eighties really even. And, uh, learning about how dominant they were more than just through under than just like the highlights, I guess you could say. I mean, it's like, Hey, why can't we just do that again? You know, Mr. Ford, why can't you just sell the team again? And why don't you talk about that? There's a little bit of that going on there too. in part of your top 10. Yeah. Uh, another thing, a lot of people look to this one incident as the reason that the lions uh, have not done well over the years, uh, the ownership of William Clay Ford. He actually, uh, purchased the team, became the the sole owner. He, he bought out a couple other people who were co-owners and became the sole owner of the team on November 22nd, 1963. And if you look up in your history books, what that date is significant for, that's the day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. So the very day that Kennedy was assassinated, William Clay Ford bought the Detroit Lions. And it was an interesting story where after they made the deal and signed all the papers, uh, several of them went to lunch to celebrate Ford purchasing the team and the waitress came over and she said, uh, did you guys hear about president Kennedy? And at first they thought it was some kind of a joke, you know, uh, like, like, okay, what's the punchline. And then they realized that she was serious. And then on the TV that 
there it was. President Kennedy had been assassinated. So uh, some people will look to that and and say, well, that's that's part of the the dark uh, history of the Lions. That that they say that that's why the team has not done well is because they were kind of cursed because of, of the day that was purchased by William Clay Ford. Yeah, I mean, and not to steal any of the thunder from your article, but I found that out kind of, I don't know, maybe four or five episodes ago, because I always do a, uh, at the beginning of my show, I do like a, an on this day or in this year that's correlating to it. And I saw that somehow. I, d- I don't remember where, and maybe somehow you had the article on it before and I said where I found it. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. That What what kind of timing is this? Because I've always joked that I need to, you know, the only way the Lions are ever going to win the Super Bowl is I need to be in cahoots with Tesla or somebody. I need <laughs> to own a, an a, a automobile company that's going to just take Ford out. Not that I want to be in for Michigan and everything, but again, I got to take the automobile and they have to go bankrupt so I could get the lions from them. And that'll be my, you know, uh, trade for them. But then that'll give them out of the, uh, doldrums of the Fords. But at any rate, besides that, what else do you have for me? Speaking of flying off and everything. Well, let's see. Um, you're familiar with Walter Payton. Uh, he actually had an older brother, Eddie Payton, who played in the NFL. He bounced around to a couple of different teams uh, for a few years, but he landed with Detroit in uh, 1977. And I remember watching this. Uh, it was the, I think it was the last game of the season. It was December 17th, 1977. It was a Monday night football game. And Eddie Payton had a 98 yard kickoff return for a touchdown. And later on in the game, he had an 87 yard punt return for a touchdown in the same game. And I thought, oh, man, there's our kick returner for next year. We're going to be great. Uh, he's an he's an awesome kick returner. Uh, I, th- I thought it was just so wonderful that we had somebody that was that talented uh, playing on our team. And then in the offseason, they cut him. And I will never understand that. He, ex- <laughs> he showed that he could play the position. Why didn't they at least uh, give him another season to, you know, a, f- a full season? I, th- I think they got him midway through the season, uh, but he really shined in that last game. And I, I remember watching that uh, on Monday Night Football myself. So it's just one of those things where you kind of scratch your head and you go, why did they let him go? And that's that's kind of been one of the things that uh, uh, many Lions fans have been saying for many years. Another thing in my article was I talked about how Dutch Clark, who was the quarterback of the Lions in the 1935 championship game, he scored every point in a uh, in a game for the Portsmouth Spartans uh, on October 18th, 1931. He the final score was 19 to nothing, and he scored every single point in the game. He scored three touchdowns, uh, kicked an extra point. Uh, he, he did everything. He uh, intercepted a pass while he playing on defense. I mean, he's the quarterback, but he's also playing on defense. So he intercepted a pass and a few plays later, he scored himself by running it into the end zone. And this was against the Brooklyn Dodgers. So I don't know if that tells you anything, but, <laughs> but he did score every single point in an NFL game. And that, I don't know of another player that's done that. Somebody might have, but uh, just the fact that Dutch Clark did with the lions uh, was something that I, really grasped onto when I read that. Yeah. Um, I, I think speaking of that, Ernie Nevers, I think did that when he broke the record for the most points in a game, but I don't know for sure if there was any other points in that game that was scored. I'd have to go back and check that. You might be right on that. I do rem- remember something about Ernie Nevers. I, I would have to go double check that myself, but he, he possibly uh, scored all the points in an NFL game first, but I think Dutch Clark did it first. So, Speaking of 
going back to, I think we buried the lead there with the other thing, not really the lead, but the, let me see here. Number one on here, you had something else. What was that? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's what I meant by the, by shooting off into space here. You had number one there. This to me, I don't know why, but this one was the coolest one of all uh, talking about space. Yeah. I, I did not know this story myself either until uh, the last year or so. Leland Melvin was his name. Uh, he played for the University of Richmond, and uh, he was drafted by the Lions. Oh, let's see, what year was that? Okay, he was an, an 11th round pick in the 1980 NFL draft by the Lions. And uh, he he didn't make the team. Uh, he, he was with them for a, a couple of preseason games, I think, and then uh, he, he got cut. He went up to Canada. He was going to play up in Canada. And while he was up there, uh, he got word that the Dallas Cowboys wanted to sign him to a contract. So he left Canada, never never signed on with a team up there. But he signed on with the, the Cowboys, and he was with them uh, for about a year working out and eventually got cut by them too. And so he, he never really amounted to anything as far as his NFL career went. But he did uh, concentrate. On, he went back to school, concentrated on his uh, studies, and uh, eventually became an astronaut. And he flew twice on the space shuttle. And there's a great picture of him that they found in the article or for the article. And uh, he's wearing his Detroit Lions jersey with the number four on it, which was his number. And uh, you can see that he's he's in the space shuttle looking out uh, over the Earth uh, in the, outside the window. So that was another thing that a lot of people probably don't know because I, I had never heard it until recently myself. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> it- Let's just say he's in a, uh, a higher class than where he would have been within the NFL. <laughs> I mean, being an astronaut, that is impressive. Yeah. Yeah, he's obviously a smart guy. Uh, just uh, it, it wasn't meant for him to play football. He was meant for bigger and better things. And uh, uh, I, think, I think he did pretty well for himself. Yeah, so I don't know if that's going to be. We'll have to figure it out. I mean, we'll just pretend like this is the case. But you know, take that Packers, take that every other team out there. At least we had a we had a Lions jersey in space. What did you have? <laughs> well, there may have been some other jerseys in space, but I think they were just fans. They weren't actual former players or draft picks. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I told you this is our fantasy world. You and I are Detroit Lions right now. We get to talk and no one else can listen because I'm muting them. So we're pretending for the fact that it's just Detroit Lions jerseys. That, and that's it. <laughs> you have any other cool facts from the article? Yeah, uh, there's a couple of other things. Uh, Lem Barney and Mel Farr got to sing backup on uh, a Marvin Gaye hit. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the song What's Going On, but that was a big hit. Uh, for, uh, for him in, in the Motown days. And the way it worked out was that uh, Marvin Gaye was living in Detroit and he was a big Lions fan. Lem Barney was uh, a big Marvin Gaye fan himself. And Lem Barney wanted to meet Marvin Gaye and he found out that he played golf uh, every week at this particular golf club. So one day Lem Barney went out to the golf club golf course to see if he could find him. And he's, he's asking around some of the people that work there. And they said, no, Marvin's not here today, but we can tell you where his house is. Now, can you imagine somebody today uh, <laughs> pointing you to some big celebrity's house and say, yeah, just go over there and go to his house. Well, that's what they did. Uh, so Lem Barney drove over to his house, walked up to the front door, knocked on the door, Marvin Gaye opens the door and he says, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of yours. And, and Marvin Gaye says, I know who you are. You play for the Lions. Come on in. And they became 
instant friends over that. And uh, Lem Barney and Mel Farr, uh, another player for the Lions, they ended up uh, all being friends. And they would go and, and go to the Motown studios and listen to Marvin Gaye record some of his songs. And one day he was recording what's going on. And he just asked them if they would sing back up with several other people. And so they did. And, and Lem Barney and Mel Farr actually won uh, gold records because the, that record went gold. And so they got copies of gold records for their participation on that song. And then soon after that, uh, Marvin Gaye decided that he wanted to try out for the lions. Uh, he had never played football before. He'd never played in high school, was not that much of an athlete, but he took it very seriously and he converted part of his garage. I think he pulled some of his uh, Cadillacs, limousines, whatever he had, pulled them out of the garage and turned his garage into a gym. He had weights, he had other things there, and he was very serious. He dropped a lot of weight and he really bulked up and he was very serious about trying to sign on with the Lions. And they they gave him a courtesy tryout. Uh, they they were worried that he was going to get hit uh, really hard in a game. And so they, they didn't want him. Uh, they didn't want to be the team that, <laughs> that took down Marvin Gaye. So uh, eventually they just said, you know, you're, you're not right for the team. And, and he accepted that. And he just he went back to making great music. And again, like I said before, uh, this wasn't what Marvin Gaye was meant to do. He was meant to make great music in Detroit and that's what he did. And, and, uh, but yeah, he he actually did try out for the Detroit Lions. Speaking of music in Detroit Lions, what was the the song? I just remember as a kid listening to it on the way to school. It was like, was it a rendit? Uh, was it called the parody of another one bites the dust? Yes, yes, another one. It was Jimmy Spider Man Allen, and uh, he recorded it along with David Hill and a couple other players. Um, they, they kept the same beat and they just kind of changed the words a little bit, something that weird Al does now, but, uh, they, they came up with a song, uh, another one bites the dust. And they talked about, you know, how, uh, they were having a great season that year. I want, I want to say it was 1980. I'm, I'm not positive. It might've been 81, but I actually have that on a 45. They were selling those in stores and I, I might've been at the stadium too. It might, they might've been selling them at, uh, the Silverdome, but I have that on a 45 and you can find it out there on YouTube, but. Yeah, another one bites the dust because they were having a great season that year. They were like uh, four and one, and they went five and one, and and so you know every every time they win another game, it's another one bites the dust, and that was their their song that year. And I don't think they made the playoffs that year either. They kind of fell apart towards the end of the season. But when uh, when that song was going on and they were winning games early in the year, that was a, that was a great time to be a Lions fan. <laughs> yeah, I, I just remember. So I must have been listening to it way after it came out then because I would have been born in 85. Though, you know, the old Super Bowl shuffle guys and everything. But I, uh, nope. geez, man, I want to say it would have been in the mid 90s probably when we would have been listening to it on the way to work or uh, the way to work, the way to school. But we would have had probably a VHS just to record it or something like that. Or not VHS. What are those <laughs> called? Oh, man, I'm really showing my age here. Cassette tapes. <laughs> Yeah, another story in the article was uh, about George Plimpton, uh, the author of Paper Lion. Uh, interesting that uh, he was uh, a big fan of Bobby Kennedy, and he was at a political rally out in California. And uh, another former player, Rosie Greer, who's one of the four horsemen, <laughs> four horsemen, the, the fearsome foursome uh, from the Los Angeles Rams of the 60s, he was working security that day too. 
And uh, that was the day that uh, Bobby Kennedy was giving a speech. And as he got off the stage, he was going through the kitchen area to leave the hotel. And uh, a guy by the name of Sirhan Sirhan uh, shot him a couple of times uh, in the kitchen. And it was uh, George Plimpton and Rosie Greer who actually wrestled him to the ground and got the gun away from him uh, and held him for the police. And so that was... Uh, um, just an incredible event that that a couple of former football players, well, if you can call George Plimpton a football player, um, that they were, had a hand in apprehending the the man that assassinated Bobby Kennedy. That was uh, an incredible story, also that a lot of people probably don't know that. Yeah, I mean, your article was the first time I had ever even heard of that as well. And speaking of that, so how many we get through now? I don't know how many we have left. I, I, I lost count here. Uh, let's see. <laughs> uh, Oh, I think we're I think we're up to number eight here. Uh, running back Billy Sims almost became a member of the USFL's Houston Gamblers, and I remember this too. Uh, this was uh, in the mid '80s, uh, and Billy Sims had been with Detroit for a couple of years, and he was he was really good. I mean, to me, Billy Sims was Barry Sanders before Barry Sanders came along. Had he not been injured, he would have been talked about the way people talk about Barry Sanders right now, but. Uh, he had a, an agent by the name of Jerry Argovitz who uh, became a part owner of the Houston gamblers uh, of the USFL. And, but he was still acting as um, Billy's agent and which you're not supposed to do. I mean, that was kind of like illegal. Uh, so he was trying to tell Billy that the lions were not interested in him. They didn't want to receive, uh, <laughs> they didn't want to resign him, but in, in actuality, the lions did want to resign him. So he actually wound up signing a contract with uh, the USFL team. And then when he realized what was going on, that he'd been lied to by his agent, um, it, it all went to court. And uh, eventually the, the courts decided that uh, his contract with the USFL was null, null and void because uh, you know, as the owner of the team, he couldn't act as the, the player's agent. So he remained with Detroit. Unfortunately, <laughs> this was after three seasons and, and Billy played uh, one more season and got injured uh, midway through the season in a game against the Vikings and his career was over, but Billy Sims was an awesome player. Uh, he's, he uh, was one of my favorite players at the time. In fact, I have uh, his very first game uh, in 1980 against the Los Angeles Rams when he made his debut debut with Detroit, just an, an awesome game. He really set the, set the NFL on fire uh, with his performance that day. And, uh, I've always been a big fan of Billy Sims. Yeah, I mean, I didn't watch him live, you know, of course, but I, I, I when I think of Billy Sims, I think of the airplane move, of course, in the, in the end zone. And then um, really more recently with the show, I've learned more about his career and what people thought about him, even though it was short. I do have an autographed football of him, though. I, I don't know which casino it was. I was younger and we were at, I just remember being in a parking lot at a casino, probably Soaring Eagle. And my dad went in and get, got a, a football autograph to Billy Sims. So I could say I have one of those. So speaking of that, so you have one, one more, right, from the article? Right. Yep. Yeah, the article ends with um, the fact that Detroit has drafted seven Heisman Trophy winners over the years. And I, and I list each one. The first one was uh, Frank Sinkwich out of Georgia. He was the 1942 Heisman Trophy winner. And then there was Leon Hart, the 1949 Heisman winner, uh, Howard Hopalong Cassidy from Ohio State. He was the 1955 Heisman Trophy winner. Uh, 
Steve Owens out of Oklahoma. He was the 1969 Heisman Trophy winner. Then, of course, you've got Billy Sims out of Oklahoma in 78. And let's see, um, uh, Barry Sanders from Oklahoma State in 1988. And uh, it was Andre Ware. Well, I really had big hopes for Andre Ware when he was drafted. Uh, he was the Heisman Trophy winner out of Houston in 1989. And he just seemed like he was going to be the perfect fit because at the time Detroit was running the run and shoot offense, which was very popular at that time. And he was from Houston and Houston was running the run and shoot offense. It seemed like a perfect fit for him to come to Detroit, run that same offense. Uh, we had some decent receivers, but it just didn't work out from on for Andre Ware. I don't know what it was. Uh, he could, he could throw the ball a mile, but his receiver wasn't there when the ball hit the ground. So uh, I really, really had big hopes for Andre Ware, and I'm just I'm sorry that things didn't work out uh, with him in Detroit because he was an awesome player in college. And there was one other uh, Heisman Trophy winner that Detroit had. They didn't draft him, but uh, everyone's familiar with Doak Walker out of SMU. He was the uh, 1948 uh, Heisman winner. Uh, we actually got him from a trade uh, with the New York Bulldogs. Uh, he spent like one season there, and then we made a trade for him and got him in Detroit. And he and uh, uh, oh gosh, <laughs> uh, Bobby Lane. He and Bobby Lane uh, went to this to the same high school in Texas. Uh, they they knew each other. They wanted to go to college together, but it didn't work out. Uh, so I mean, between Bobby Lane and uh, Doak Walker and some of the other guys that we had, Leon Hart, uh, Detroit had an awesome team in the fifties, and people just don't realize that, but they really did. And uh, I'm hoping that uh, we can turn things around here in the next couple of years and, and get these lions into a super bowl. Yeah. Well, I hate to say it to you. You're in what they call the Detroit lions ground groundhog day every, every three years or something like that. Cause you just said the same thing we say every three years. And speaking of that high school there in, in uh, Dallas, the that's where Stafford went too. So, you know, yes. the first thing I had to do when I went down there is I have a, I went to that stadium, and when I, I, I have a video or a picture of me in that with Stafford's jersey on. So again, the Stafford, and then Jerry Jones' grandson won the state championship while I was down there not too long ago. You know that had to be rigged because it was in the Jerry Dome, <laughs> and you know the the refs if they're looking up at Jerry sitting there in his little cubicle office up there up in the you know the mansion. And uh, if yeah. I don't put this player at any rate, I'll get out of that Jerry World kind of business. And I'll get on to the coffin corner. I, there's something I, I heard in your last episode that you and your son were talking about. About uh, It, it kind of it couples into the next, uh, what we're going to discuss, the Professional Football Research Association Convention and the, and the archives and the coffin corner in your article. There was something cool you said. What was, wh where do they put this? Yeah, well, the, the coffin corner is the magazine of the Professional Football Researchers Association. And every issue goes out to the members, of course, but they also send a copy, I think, to every team in the NFL, to certain newspaper reporters. They get a copy of the magazine also. It comes out uh, uh, six times a year, so every other month there's an issue out. But they are also archived uh, at the Pro Football Hall of Fame in the Ralph Wilson uh, Preservation Center um, that, that he, you know, spent a lot of money uh, to get that going. And, uh, and there actually is, um, a, a section where all of the coffin corners, uh, ever since the organization was started back in 1979, I believe 
is on is there to be preserved for all time. So it's kind of nice to know that uh, you write an article, they put it in the coffin corner, and it's going to be in the Hall of Fame for forever. So that's kind of cool. And so I always encourage other people to to write an article for the coffin corner just just to have it in the Hall of Fame for the rest of your life. And speaking of that, if a listener of the show is interested in writing their own article to submit, where should they go? Well, first, you've got to join the Pro Football Researchers Association. And uh, I think the website is profootballresearchers.com. Uh, it's it's not very expensive, but uh, you'll get the magazine every uh, every other month. And uh, you get to go to conventions every every other year. We hadn't had one in three years because last year's convention got canceled due to COVID. Uh, COVID ruined everything last year. But they had it this year, and it was at uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So just to, to spend a couple of days at the Hall of Fame uh, listening to some great speakers. I actually did a presentation myself also with a few other members. And uh, uh, it's, it's just a great time. Uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame is Disneyland for football fans. You just, you can't get enough of it. You don't want to leave. Uh, I spent way too much money in the gift shop. Uh, I bought a, uh, an Alex Karras uh, hall of fame t-shirt and I got a Calvin Johnson one for my son. Uh, there's so many cool items there that you can, you can spend all day there. We, we had a two hour break and a buddy of mine went there and, and we spent the whole two hours at the gift shop. And I, I had my arms full of stuff. I kept saying, where, where are the, uh, where the shopping carts at? Because uh, I had so much stuff I couldn't carry it all, and uh, they don't have shopping carts there. But it was—it's uh, just a great place to be. And uh, in years past, we've had conventions in Green Bay, so we got to see uh, do a tour of Lambeau Field, which is pretty cool. I mean, I—I'm not a Packers fan, but I'll tell you this: I like the town of Green Bay. I like the people in Green Bay. They were all very nice to us. Lambeau Field is awful, awesome to see. Uh, uh, you know, a behind the scenes tour, the Packers Hall of Fame is very interesting. It's just a great experience. I just don't want to see him win on the field. But uh, Green Bay is great. We've, we've been to Cleveland. Uh, we've been to Buffalo. Uh, and we've also been to NFL Films a couple of times. So uh, um, that's that was an awesome place, too, um, to go and, and have a convention. So uh, that's that's one of the things. If, if you want to write for the Coffin Corner, Join the Pro Football Researchers Association, and they'll be more than happy to uh, to help you get an article pro, uh, printed in there. I, I've, this was my third article for the uh, uh, Coffin Corner, and uh, uh, I, I plan to do a couple more. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to leave links in the show notes so they can check out the Pro Football Researchers Association as well as the uh, – Coffin Corner. And then also I want to include a link to your episode 203, the most recent episode. We won't go into detail your experience at the Pro Football Researchers Convention, but I tell you what, what you described in that convention was it was succinct enough to get an understanding of what it was, but it was jam-packed with activities. And if you're a fan of football and history, you have to go to Canton, not just the Hall of Fame, but there's so much more beyond uh, listening to what you described in that nature. And I'll tell you what, as the uh, I can just say the resident Lions guru here just because I'm the only one in the house talking to you at the moment as far as football <laughs> fans. I will not oust you for saying that it's okay to, to love the history of the Packers because you cannot be a true NFL history fan without recognizing what the Packers organization or the Bears or any other thing has done for this league and for us as Lions fans. So, yeah, I will give you that pass, but that's only for five <laughs> minutes and expires at the end of this question. But speaking of the Pro Football Researchers Convention, uh, you, you also presented at least one or two different types of lectures there, didn't you? 
Uh, I did one lecture. Yeah, it was about uh, 18, 20 minutes or whatever. But uh, we, we had a panel the first night that was uh, all about pro football before the NFL. So, you know, pro football before 1920. And uh, I was the first speaker. And basically, uh, I talked about uh, the first pro football player, which was Pudge Heffelfinger. Back in 1892, uh, he played in a game for the Allegheny Athletic Association against the Pittsburgh Athletic Club. Uh, he was paid $500 to play in one game. Can you imagine how much money that was in 1892 to get $500 to play in one game? And uh, But the, the fact that uh, he became the first pro football player because of that wasn't really known until the 1960s when they found the uh, record book uh, or the uh, uh, accountant's book for the Allegheny Athletic Association. And in their ledger, they had handwritten in there, Pudge Heffelfinger, cash, $500 for playing in the game. And so that's how we know that he is the first documented pro football player. In fact, that that page out of that, uh, uh, that ledger is actually on display in the Hall of Fame. You can go and see that for yourself. And then the next week, they actually paid another guy $250 to play in a game the following week, making him the second uh, pro football player. Uh, his name was Ben Sport Donnelly. And so they're both on the same page. You can see both of their names and the fact that they they paid him cash to be in those games. And then I also talked about the first pro football team, which was the Allegheny Athletic Association. In 1896, they fielded a team where everybody on the team was being paid. They were all paid $100 uh, each to play in two games. They played two games in two days, and that was their entire season for that year. And then they disbanded after that. Uh, because of some problems with the amateur athletic union, knowing that they <laughs> were paying people to play on their team. So they had to disband. But uh, they went out in a blaze of glory by by playing two games where everybody was paid uh, $100 each to play in those games. And then uh, finally, I talked about Charles Follis. And Charles Follis was uh, an African-American who was, uh, he grew up in Wooster, Ohio. And uh, he played uh, professionally for the Shelby Blues uh, from Shelby, Ohio, which is it's right near Wooster. Um, and he was he signed with them in 1902, played with them in 1906. And starting in 1904, he was paid $10 a game to play. So making him the first black uh, pro football player in 1904. And tragically, he only lived to the age of uh, 31. He died of pneumonia. And uh, but the whole town of Wooster and Shelby have uh, started with something they call the uh, the Black Cyclone Trail. Uh, that was his nickname, the Black Cyclone from Wooster. Wasn't that a great nickname? My gosh, they don't get any better than that. And uh, they have the Black Cyclone Trail where you can uh, go around town and they have like historical markers. Um, you can go visit his grave. You can visit the old uh, high school football field where he used to play. Uh, the, the current high school stadium there in Wooster is called Follis Field. And uh, uh and then in Shelby, they have uh, a couple other places. Uh, they have the you know the site where the Shelby Field was, and they also have uh, uh, you can go to see the grave of the team owner that signed him uh, to the team uh, in Shelby. So yeah, those were the three people that I talked about during my talk, and uh, um, it was fairly well received. Yeah, I mean, speaking of also the you know the the, the cyclone trail there with the grave. Uh, there's, there's a lot of photos of you at former player and coaches graves on your site. I mean, for, okay. First, what was the first one? 
Second, why did you decide to take photos of it and then proceed to go forward with it? Well, the first grave that I ever went to was a Newt Rockney's grave down in South Bend. Uh, it's not too far from Kalamazoo here. It's maybe an hour and a half drive. And I, I'd known that he was buried down there for some time. And, and we went down and, and got pictures with that. And, and after that, then I wanted to go see the grave of George Gipp. And he's buried in Calumet, Michigan, which uh, uh, is way up at the top of the uh, Keweenaw Peninsula and the Upper Peninsula. So we went to visit his grave. And the whole reason I got into this is when I was a kid uh, growing up, my dad worked in a factory for 36 years, but he had five kids. I was the fourth out of five kids. And so he always had like a second job. Uh, he, he was a locksmith for many years. Uh, he, he sold cemetery monuments uh, and, and he also uh, had his own archery shop in town for, for a while. And so I remember as a little kid, uh, my dad would, would, you know, uh, get in touch with the, the funeral homes. They'd find out who had passed away and, and he would go and talk to the family and, and he would help them design the headstone to go on the grave. And I remember as a kid going with him to many cemeteries around a couple of different counties where we lived. And he would go and make sure that the, the stone got delivered, that everything was spelled right. The dates and the names, everything was right. It was the color they wanted and all that. So, uh, you know, and we lived next to a cemetery growing up. So it was, it was not a big deal at all for me to go to cemeteries and, uh, and have an appreciation for these sort of things. And so when I got into going to the football graves, it was, it just made a lot of sense. I mean, it was very natural for me. It's one thing to read about Newt Rockney or Vince Lombardi or whatever, whoever. And, and they're just, they're just words on a page. But when you actually go and you find Vince Lombardi's grave in New Jersey, and you stand next to his final resting place. It really uh, brings that person to life. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good way to put it or not, but you know, it, it makes them real. They're a real person, and, and here you are standing next to their to their final resting place. And so, I just I have a whole list of ones that I've gone to about twenty seven so far, but I have even more. There's several around the Chicago area I want to go see. There's uh, some in Pennsylvania. I uh, I actually went down to um, to Dallas a few years ago when Western Michigan University was playing in the uh, Cotton Bowl against Wisconsin, and uh, the first thing we did as soon as we got into town is I headed for a cemetery where I found uh, the grave of uh, Cowboys coach uh, Tom Landry, and uh, uh, that was kind of interesting. And then not too far away from Tom Landry was um, the uh, owner of the Kansas city chiefs, Lamar hunt. So those two guys are buried in the same cemetery in Dallas. I've been to Champaign, Illinois and saw the grave of Buzz Nutter, who was a great uh, Illinois coach. Been to pop Warner's grave, Paul Brown's grave in Canton. Um, Joe F Carr's grave. He was the, an NFL president from 1921. Uh, and he was there for about 20 years. Uh, that's in Columbus, Ohio. There's Walter Lingo. He was the uh, owner of the Oorang Indians team out of LaRue, Ohio. They were the smallest town to have an NFL team. I think there's only a couple hundred people in the whole team, whole town, but uh, he bought a franchise and he, he had a team for a year or two. Um, like I said, been to Charles Follis's grave and uh, John Heisman's grave in, uh, in Rhinelander, Wisconsin. I've uh, been to see Bronco Nagurski's grave in International Falls. Um, <laughs> during the pandemic, my wife and I uh, went to see William Clay Ford's grave in Detroit. And a few miles away in another cemetery was the grave of Ralph Wilson, the Bills owner. 
Uh, people don't know this, but Ralph Wilson never actually lived in Buffalo. He always lived in Detroit. Uh, he and William Clay Ford at one time or another were part owners of the Lions. And the reason that the Bills have a, a blue color for their uniforms was because he, you know, he was a part owner of the Lions and he liked that. So they're buried in uh, separate cemeteries in Detroit. You know, I've been to see Bo Schembechler's grave in Ann Arbor. Um, yeah, I've been all over the place. But uh, even while I was at the Pro Football Hall of Fame this past weekend, a buddy of mine and I took a little side trip and we went to a tiny town of Hiram, Ohio, which is about an hour's north of, uh, of Canton. And we found the grave of Jack Trice. Now, if you're not familiar with Jack Trice, uh, Iowa State University, their football stadium is called Jack Trice Stadium. And the story behind him is uh, in 1923, he was uh, uh, an African-American player playing in his second varsity game as a sophomore. And he played on the defensive line. He uh, got knocked down during one play and was literally trampled over by a couple of players from the other team. Some people thought that it might have been racially motivated. I think he was the only, the only black player on the whole field that day. Um, and then he wound up dying two days later. Uh, and uh, his his story got kind of lost over the years, but um, it was like rediscovered in the 50s. And ever since then, the students at the school have been on a campaign to get the stadium named Jack Trice Stadium. And finally, a few years ago, that actually did happen. So... Um, Iowa State does play in Jack Trice Stadium, and I just, when I found out that his grave was so close to Canton, which is where I was going to be last weekend, I said, I've got to go see it, and we, we did. We found it, got some pictures taken with it, and uh, um, checked off another one off my grave list. <laughs> yeah, man, that that's pretty cool. It's almost like, uh, so they have this thing called geocaching where you go hunt for treasures or whatever, but it's uh, hunting for the... <laughs> The uh, graves of players, which, uh, so I got to, okay, there's going to be a couple questions here. The first one is going to be, which grave that you've so far visited where you were sitting there reading and all of a sudden you got the chills and just describe how that moment went? Well, you'd be surprised that a, a lot of these graves, uh, they're very, they're very plain. They don't... Um, uh, talk a lot about the the person's uh, football career. Uh, for example, Newt Rockney. When I went there, it, it it's basically just a, a little square stone on the ground that says Newt Rockney, and it's got you know the years, uh, born and, and death year, and then it just says father, and that's all it is. And he's buried next to his his wife, and and it's got her name, and it says mother, and then their son is buried next to the two of them, so it, it says son on his. Uh, there, a lot of them are very plain. Uh, they don't, um, they don't really stand out too much, but, um, one of the ones that, that I was, uh, impressed with just recently, uh, I went to see the new headstone that they made for Charles Follis. I went to, I went there a few years ago and it was a very simple stone, um, uh, headstone that had like seven people's name on it. Uh, there was his parents, there was him, there was a brother and sister. and. Uh, and that was all it was, but because of the, um, uh, the black cyclone trail, they put up a new headstone for him where they, they talk quite a bit about, uh, his career, you know, being the first black pro football player and, and all the things that he did. It's, it's a much better, um, um, 
better way to honor his legacy in that town. Uh, the, the backside of the headstone includes all of the family members uh, from the original stone with their birth and death years and all that. But on the backside, it's, it's all dedicated to Charles Follis. And that's, that's a, that's a really, really nice one. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So then now I'm going to get into the next question, which kind of is a little different than I was going to ask because you, you mentioned a comment where you said, uh, you know, being at the headstone or the gravestone kind of brings them back to life. And you're like, I don't know if that's really the right way to put it, but I, I think it is. I think that's a good way to say it because there's that connectivity that we all have that we share as one uh, human race and being there with them. And there's just something in the back that brings it out. But I'm going to give you a different way to do this. This is going to be the next DeLorean question. I'm going to physically give you the keys to my DeLorean. You can go back in time and you can have a conversation dinner with one of these persons that you visited their graves with. Who is it and what are you going to do? Oh boy. Somebody that I, that I've been to their grave, huh? Well, uh, I've been to the grave of Walter Camp in New Haven, Connecticut. And I really think I would like to talk to Walter Camp. Uh, he was there at the very beginning. It was Walter Camp who basically set up uh, everything for football as we know today. He he came up with the quarterback position. He was the one that said, we're going to have 11 guys on a side and we're going to have a series of downs and all that. And uh, I would really, really like to talk to him. When the, when the forward pass came along in 1906, he was very much against it. He did not like the idea of adding the forward pass to the game of football that he basically created. You know, it was just all running and and uh, uh, laterals. You know, kind of like rugby. But uh, I think I would really like to to sit down and talk with Walter Camp and just uh, pick his brain. And and uh, uh, he, he must have been a fascinating individual to uh, to talk to and and just talk football with. I think that would be awesome. Yeah, I think that's one of those deals where you can't fault the guy for saying he wants to go talk to the father of something that became the biggest sport <laughs> in America by any measure of the nature. So, yeah, I would agree that'd be a good one to talk to. That's almost an impossible <laughs> task. When I ask these questions like that, like pick one player or one person back in time and you're like, well, that's not fair. <laughs> you know, what, can I keep the DeLorean for a while? And I always tell the people, I don't know. How am I going to know you're coming back? to present time and you just went throughout the history. So how would I even know? Cause things have been changed. <laughs> yeah. So let's go with another DeLorean then. I mean, I, I'm going to kind of get this a little bit different because I wanted to take you back in time, uh, but it's going to be a actual football moment that you lived with your family that you have a photo of that you can go and relive with that family again. Oh boy. A football moment with my family. Um, my wife is not a big football fan, so I don't have too many pictures of her at, at Lions games, but uh, she has been to a couple of uh, NFL games with me, and she went to a couple of arena games with me. Um, but I have a picture of uh, myself and, and two of my sons at a Lions game. Uh, it was one of those deals where they were just walking around the concourse, and they were taking people's pictures. And uh, then, you know, like after the game, you could go and pick up your photos or uh, – Maybe, maybe it was online. Yeah, I think it was online. You'd, you'd go and, and you could uh, download the picture and whatnot and print it off. And, and uh, they had a nice little lion's frame around it. So uh, that's, that's one of the pictures that I've got there. Uh, I've got some pictures of me and some of my boys at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You know, they do the same thing there. You, you walk into the Hall of Fame and the first thing they do is they stand you up in front of a green screen. They let you uh, hold a football or or a helmet or something like that. And so I've, I've got several pictures from different visits over the years with the, 
uh, various uh, various sons of mine, and uh, those are all pretty special too. Um, what they can do is they can, because it's on a green screen, they can put you anywhere in the Hall of Fame. They can put you uh, in the middle of, of Fawcett Stadium, or they can put you uh, with all the the busts of the Hall of Famers uh, behind you. And uh, so you got three different, you know, three four different poses, and those are those are just so nice. And uh, uh, so those are some of the great pictures that that I like having with uh, with my family at the, either the Pro Football Hall of Fame or or at a Lions game. <laughs> Speaking of photos, so. The listener of the show needs to go to theworldoffootball.com and they need to look at your photos because you have a pose, like you command presence of the room, like nobody's business. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that. I'm just, I'm trying to suck in my gut half the time so I don't look as bad as uh, I really am. But uh, uh, I I do take a lot of pride in going to these places because, you know, when you've been in a car for a couple of days trying to get to a grave somewhere and you want to take a good picture to remember that for, for all posterity. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, that it just, you still got to give it to somebody like you that, like you said, you, you just, you just mentioned you spent a couple of days in a car to go take a photo of a grave of somebody who may not have been around for 50, 60 years or whatever it is. So there's that dedication. And even in your tagline, you talk about how, Kalamazoo is the center of the football world or something like that. I forget. What is the tagline that you guys say there? Oh, we, we call it the center of the football world. And, and I say that because if you look at Kalamazoo on a map and you take a, a, a big circle and, and draw it around there, and I think uh, the circle I drew was like equivalent to an eight-hour drive around Kalamazoo, you're going to have uh, the Chicago Bears, the Green Bay Packers, Notre Dame, Michigan, Michigan State, uh, Purdue, you're going to get the Indi- uh, Indianapolis Colts, you're going to get the Cleveland Browns, the Cincinnati Bengals, you're going to get the Toronto Argonauts and the uh, Hamilton Tiger Cats of the CFL. Those teams are all within an eight-hour drive of Kalamazoo, and and that's why I call it the center of the football world because you know so many great players and stories and teams came out of uh, all those institutions, college, NFL, and CFL, that uh, we're sitting right here in the middle of it. So it's it's a great spot to. Uh, to head out from and uh, and go see a game, whether it's college, CFL, or NFL. Yeah, speaking of one of those places that's not, uh, I don't know, what is it, maybe a three-hour, four-hour drive for you, Canton, Ohio. Are you going this year for the induction ceremony? Um, no, I've, I've never been to an induction ceremony before. Um, I, I, especially after COVID, I'm not a big fan of big crowds, uh, but they are going to have a uh, – uh, historically black college uh, colleges and university game at well, it's it's not Fawcett Stadium anymore. What is it now? Uh, Tom Benson Stadium. Yeah, I guess that's what it is. Uh, but they're they're going to have a game there with between Grambling and I forget who the other team is. And I would I would dearly love to go see Grambling play. I've never seen Grambling, so that's another team I would like to see uh, in person. So I'm thinking that maybe you know in September I might go down there for that game. But uh, uh, for the induction ceremonies. Uh, I don't know. I, I've, I'll watch it on TV. I don't need to go for those. <laughs> okay. Well, no worries. I mean, it's uh, something I'll tell you is you could appreciate this as being a Lions fan and everything. And, uh, well, not just a Lions fan, but a football family fan. I'll, I'll, I'll take it that route. So 2018, 2019, my, I, I was lucky enough to get the press passes as the football history do podcast. So I took my father and my brother. And then the second year I took just my dad, we were behind the say, the scenes, you know, going places. I'm actually in the same room 
with the first year we went 2018. So this is Ray Lewis, Brian Dawkins. I mean, these guys, I grew up like, these are my dudes, you know, when I was in football and I got to shake like Ray Lewis's hands. I got to ask Dawkins a question, Randy Moss a question. So, I mean, it was a super cool experience. And the best part about it was I got to experience it with my family. And unfortunately there were no lions, but <laughs> I'm hoping to get the <laughs> press passes again this year for Megatron. And I don't know anything about Karis from personally, of course, from watching it, but as a lions fan, anytime someone goes in, you got to say, Hey, let's get after this one. Uh, I, I wish I would have been there for Barry Sanders, but the only time I was at the hall of fame previously before this 2018 season, he was still playing. I was younger. I had those really goofy looking glasses, you know, and I just remember sitting <laughs> on AstroTurf, but they had a photo of Barry Sanders for probably breaking some kind of record or something. I don't know what it was, but we got a picture of my family in front of that. So again, football is family is what we talk about. There you go, Jeremy McFarland. There's a shout out for your podcast. Uh, something I want to tell you <laughs> too, Randy. First off, thank you for your service. How, how many years were you in? Uh, I was uh, in the Michigan Air National Guard for 21 years. Uh, my wife actually did 26 years. So she uh, she had one more stripe than I did uh, pretty much our whole career. So I was always outranked at home and at the office. <laughs> well, 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 thank thank you both then for your service. And uh, <laughs> speaking of that, something I thought was very cool I saw on your website. I'm not sure if you have this going anymore, but what is Operation Gridiron Airlift? Oh, that was something that I did, I think, uh, starting in 2009, maybe through 2012. Uh, I had a lot of connections back in those days uh, when the Arena Football League was still on. Um, and what I did was I collected uh, over the course of a couple of years uh, about 500 different footballs from different organizations. I got some from the Lions. Um, I got from, some from the Rampage and uh, uh, many colleges, uh, Michigan State and Michigan. They, they would send me boxes of footballs. And I packaged those up and I sent them to um, uh, different uh, locations around the world. Uh, one of the main ones was uh, Afghanistan. They had the uh, Pat Tillman. Gosh, I, I can't think of what it was, but it, but it was uh, a, a place where the where the soldiers could go and uh, you know just get, like get away from it all. They could get coffee and donuts. So it was like a USO place. That's what it was. It was the Pat Tillman USO Center, and uh, I had contacted that guy. And uh, so, you know, he was my contact and he told me how to how to send things over there. And I would send him several boxes of footballs. And he sent me some pictures of the guys actually playing football uh, on the tarmac, you know, by the airplanes, uh, just getting a quick game together. And, you know, these guys over there, they really miss football. Uh, I don't know if they get to see the games much because a lot of the games are played in the middle of the night. So, you know, they have to be. Uh, up all night to watch a game and it may not be their team, but you know, just having a football to toss around uh, uh, made a world of difference for some of these guys. So uh, I, I did that for a couple of years and, and eventually all of my contacts seemed to dry up and I, <laughs> I didn't uh, uh, have any way to get them over there anymore. So I kind of stopped doing that, but yeah, uh, for a couple of years, I, I think a little over 500 footballs is what I collected and uh, sent them to uh, various points uh, uh, around the, around the world tour troops. You know, I, I thought it was the coolest thing when I saw that you did that. And of course you did it out of the, just the pure patriotism and then also understanding what they go through over there to protect us and what we have coming up here in a couple of days to remember, which will be a little different this year, probably more celebratory for a lot of people because last year with COVID and everything and everything else that's going on. So I, I again, anything we can do to support the troops in any way, you know, as far as the football history, do the sports history network, we're always all about it. So if you do ever start something like that again, I mean, definitely let us know so we can find a way to promote it. Or even if it's anything else, I mean, again, that's, 
they're over there fighting for what <laughs> they're protecting what we believe in. And if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be where we're at. And I wouldn't be able to do this, you know, talking to you over a podcast, free to speech, all these other things, I wouldn't have that ability. So I can't say anything else enough about them other than now let's get to you. And I'm going to ask you the last DeLorean question. The most important DeLorean question, mind you, you've gone into the future. Unfortunately, this might be 50 years or however long it takes till I can buy an automobile shop and take out Fords. But the Lions finally win our Super Bowl. How are you going to celebrate? <laughs> well, I'm probably going to have a heart attack uh, when that actually does happen because uh, it, it may be a few years. Uh, I'm not getting any younger. Uh, I know they've, they've been selling T-shirts, you know, Lions T-shirts that say just one before I die. And uh, I need to get one of those. But it will it will be awesome. You know, the more that you suffer as a fan, the greater the reward is going to be when your team finally uh, wins a Super Bowl, wins a title. Um, you know, and, and you can share in that because, like I said, uh, my first game was 1975. So from 1975 to whenever they win it. Uh, it's that many years of frustration. They've had some great seasons. They've had some terrible seasons, but through thick and thin, you know, I've been following them and it's, when it does happen, it's going to be awesome. And I just, I just hope I don't have a heart attack that day and, and, uh, wind up in the hospital or worse. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. I mean, we always talk about it on the show where, you know, my, I'm hoping that they can win one for my grandpa before he moves on and everything, which it's unfortunately coming closer to the end there. So hopefully, hopefully uh, Campbell and all those guys, they, I don't know, will bite some kneecaps and every, there won't be any players left to play against anymore or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, be, before, before we get into the last question, I just want to make sure we tell this to the listener. So where can the listener of the show find your work? Uh, our website is theworldoffootball.com. Don't put in just World of Football because that'll take you over to Europe to some uh, soccer site. Uh, we are theworldoffootball.com, and uh, you can find us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our, our handles there are TWOF Kalamazoo, and uh, we, we post our podcasts uh, every Thursday pretty much. Uh, uh, we used to do them uh, on Sundays, but uh, Tuesday seems to be a good day to uh, record our podcasts, and, and we'll record them. And uh, as soon as we're done, we save it and then we upload it and it's right there for everybody. So uh, if you're listening to it on a Tuesday night, it's it's only been a few hours uh, since we've recorded it and posted it for people to listen to. Um, so that's that's where they can find us. And if you, they want to send us an, an email, uh, our, our email address is info at the world of football dot com. All right, perfect. And of course, I'll be sending some or leaving these links in the show notes as well for anyone that wants to directly go to it. So I got to get you to that last, we'll call it the words of wisdom, golden gridiron, knowledge nugget, whatever you want to throw to it, you give it a label yourself, but give somebody that's listening to this show some words of wisdom that let's say they're trying to dip their toes into the wonderful world of the history of professional football or football that is and they're not quite sure what they should do next. What kind of words of wisdom would you give them? Well, there are an awful lot of resources out there. I just uh, was at a, a used bookstore today, and I, I picked up a book um, that's called The Big Nine. And it's a book about the Big Ten Conference before they got a 10th team. So this, I think it was published in 1948. Uh, you can find a lot of resources in old bookstores. There's a lot of online resources where you can uh, research the history of football. Uh, and all I can say is 
pick pick something that you're really interested in. I mean, if it's if it's just the history of your particular team, uh, become an expert on that. If it's uh, the history of the USFL, you know, go for it. Uh, do your research on that. Become an expert in the history of the USFL. There were some great players and great games. I I went to three games during the three years that they were playing, and I I dearly love the USFL. And uh, that's part of why I, I do what I do now, because I'll be talking to my son about the USFL and I just assume that he knows what I'm talking about. And he'll look at me like uh, that. That's before I was born, Dad. I'm sorry. I don't understand it. So there are all kinds of resources out there. I have a lot of links on my website. Uh, there's a link page where you can uh, look up stuff from the, the CFL, the USFL, the World Football League, you name it. Um, there are a lot of links to uh, all sorts of great uh, pages. I don't have to recreate everything because other people have got some great pages out there on all different aspects of football history. So find something that you like and just keep keep digging until you, you know everything you can possibly know about it. There you go. Keep on digging until you know everything you can possibly know about what you want to know about. Mm-hmm. Speaking of... Uh, what you want to know, being able to learn everything and maybe not everything, but learning a little bit. I wonder if there's a place that has all of these different pieces of information in one gathering. Wait a tick, there is. I mean, I'm glad you asked because <laughs> we have a great resource for you to find information about sports history all in one place. And that's called the Sports History Network, the headquarters for sports yesteryear. Over there, you can check out all the podcasts that we have in the lineup to keep, you know, digging into the information, like he said. And we keep adding more shows to this lineup as well as articles on the website so you can learn more about the history of your favorite sport. The best way to get there is simply going to sportshistorynetwork.com. And if you find yourself that maybe you're interested in starting your own show, your own podcast about the history of your favorite sport or team, tell you what, reach out to us on the contact page because we would love to help you start and launch your show. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads.